into uh, our program, 102.3 WHIV is a volunteer-driven community radio station, and we are not a commercial radio station. All of our hosts and DJs work hard to provide programming dedicated to human rights and social justice. We are able to honor independent voices with your ongoing support, so please become a member of WHIV today by setting up recurring donations of any amount you can per month, and that could be really any amount, one, five, ten, twenty, whatever uh, actually works for you. So uh, please uh, go to our brand new website, whivfm.org, and click donate. Thank you for your constant support, and thank you for listening to 102.3 WHIV. We have a jam-packed show full of guests, and we are going to start first with uh, Mr. Chuck uh, Fuschello, who's the CEO and president of the Alzheimer's Foundation of America. First, let me make sure, Chuck, do I have you uh, on air here? Yes, thanks for having me on. Thank you so much. It really is a uh, pleasure uh, to have you on and uh, to be uh, uh, somewhat at least partially involved with uh, the work uh, that you guys are doing as you guys are now engaging in the Alzheimer's, uh, you, the Alzheimer's Foundation of America, Educating America Tour, which is going to be here in New Orleans on October uh, 24th, uh, which is going to take place at uh, the uh, Lowe's uh, Hotel, which uh, is in uh, downtown uh, New Orleans on Poydras Street. So why don't you uh, first tell us a little something about the event that you have coming up? Well, this is part of our Educating America Tour. We started last year, and the goal is to be in all 50 states in three years. And we're in Louisiana uh, this week. Uh, we're excited about that. But this is all about empowerment. And education is knowledge, and we feel it's critically important to continually educate people about with information about Alzheimer's disease, brain health, healthy aging, and caregiving, as well as to have their questions answered. And guests will hear from leading dementia and caregiving experts who will share their stories about research and services. The conference is free. It's open to the public. And we're excited about it. And if anybody would like to register, they can just go to our website, which is alzfdn.org, or call our toll-free helpline at 866-232-8484, or just show up at the conference on this Wednesday. Great. And just uh, I just want to just do that again uh, for all y'all. That's 866-232-8484. And the website, again, is ALZ, ALZFDN, which is basically shortened uh, for Alzheimer's and, and Foundation. That's ALZFDN. Uh, uh, Mr. Chuck, can you talk us, uh, tell us a bit through uh, and, and walk us through a bit about what Alzheimer's uh, is and what some of the signs and symptoms and what people uh, should be looking for? So Alzheimer's disease is a progressive brain disorder that impacts an individual's memory, thinking, and language skills and the ability to carry out simple tasks. It's the most common form of dementia, and there's always a confusion. What is Alzheimer's? What is dementia? Dementia itself is not a disease, but it's a term that's used to describe a combination of symptoms. One of the things I want to emphasize, doctor, is that Alzheimer's, that Alzheimer's is not a normal part of aging. And individuals have to understand that, that this can happen to individuals uh, in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and upwards. We've, we've uh, have worked with families whose loved ones have been affected by the disease in their 30s. The symptoms to look for are changes in mood and personalities, difficulty in judging certain situations, confusion about time and place, memory loss, especially in recent events, names, places, and other new information as well. And what about the prevalence uh, of uh, uh, Alzheimer's disease, either both in uh, New Orleans or Southern well, Louisiana? It's, it's, or Louisiana? It's, it's growing. I mean, there's more than 5 million Americans living with this disease. And 
you know, the, the, the Educating America tour, as you know, again, you mentioned is this Wednesday in Louisiana, New Orleans. And one of the reasons we're doing that is there's more than 88,000 people in your state that are living with Alzheimer's disease. It's the sixth leading cause of death in this country without a cure. And in 2016, there were more than 2,000 Alzheimer's-related deaths in Louisiana, and there are more than 200,000 caregivers in your state. So you could see the prevalence alone in Louisiana, but throughout the country, it's, it's more than 5 million people that are affected by this disease. So one of the things that I, I noticed that your organization does is you guys do uh, fund uh, support for research. And so I'm wondering, why are we seeing more cases in the incidence of, uh, or at least the prevalence of Alzheimer's uh, on the uptick? And is it related at all to the environment? Or is there an environmental component, uh, either respiratory-wise or through pollutants or toxins? And is, is, is you know do you see a potential effect of climate change with uh, uh, potentially, possibly uh, adding uh, to some of that uh, as well. All of the other of the above is unknown. Um, what's what's being happening over the recent decade is a better diagnosis, a better understanding of the disease, and and people are addressing it. You know, when when we had talked about um, what are the signs and symptoms of the disease, one of the things I want to emphasize is that when you notice a change in a loved one, address it. Don't just say they're getting older and they're forgetting things. It's critically important that you address it. You know, there, there are um, things that can cause memory loss that aren't attributed to Alzheimer's. You can have a vitamin deficiency, suffering from depression, have a thyroid issue. These are all treatable, if not correctable, but you won't know it unless you go to your doctor and get, you know, your examination. So basic screens that an internist uh, or geriatrician would do would be able to pick up on Alzheimer's? Critically important you get tested. One of the uh, initiatives one of, that we're offering at the conference is free memory screenings to all those who attend. Memory screenings is a 10-minute Q&A. Uh, you get a score. It's a test of your, of your cognitive knowledge and your behavior. You get a score. If you score below the baseline, we recommend that you go see your primary care physician. If you score it above it, we recommend in six months to a year you take another screening. But, you know, we encourage everybody to come to the conference. Again, it's free. It's all about education and awareness of the programs and services that are available to caregivers, the programs and services that are available to individuals living with the disease, but also the memory screenings. It's, it's a day that's packed. Uh, with great speakers and great topics, and I hope everybody takes advantage of it. And then the advantage to going to see your doctors uh, is that with uh, uh, the appropriate uh, treatment that there can be some uh, uh, slowing of the progression of disease. Uh, you know, that's the whole thing. There are medications out there. Um, there's no cure. Um, we fund research all over the world as far as from New York all the way to Israel, and the hope is that we can uh, come up with better treatment, uh, but also a possible cure. Um, it's critically important that when you go f for your routine physical each year, as the doctor checks your body, ask him or her to check your mind as well through a memory screening. You know, some people take uh, better care of their cars, doctor, change their oil every 3,000 miles. But how many times have individuals gone to the doctor's office and said, you know, while you're checking my body for blood pressure and other indicators, how about checking my brain for my memory? 
Yeah, you're right. Uh, thank you for making me uh, aware of that as well and reminding me that that's something I need to do in my practice as well. So the uh, the American, uh, I'm sorry, the Alzheimer's Foundation, whoops, the AFA is, uh, is going to be here on the Educating America Tour. Concepts in Care Educational Conference is October 24th at the Lowe's uh, New Orleans Hotel at the Louisiana Ballroom in New Orleans, Louisiana from 9 to 1.30. Uh, the uh, event uh, is open to the public. Uh, again, more information can be found at alzfdn.org. And also uh, the phone number to call is 866 232 Mr. Chuck Fuschella, who's the CEO and President of the Alzheimer's Foundation of America. Thank you so very much for appearing on WHIV. Well, thanks for having me on. All the best. Thank you so much. And we are uh, very happy now to uh, turn uh, the microphone uh, over to... uh, Somebody that I've known uh, for many, many years, someone that I can honestly say is a very close friend, and somebody that I actually, uh, I don't know if I ever told you this, Renard, but I actually love you. Oh, uh, <laughs> well, I love you too. And I, uh, I, I love you because you are really one of the most genuine people that I know, um, and uh, and somebody that uh, whenever we get a chance to catch up with one another, it's always a pleasure to uh, to see you, and it's a pleasure to have you on air. I think we've been trying to get you on air for some time. I Yeah. And uh, Reynard is an attorney and social worker. He's the judicial administrator of the Orleans Parish Juvenile Court. You can find more information about Reynard. He tweets at Reynard. That's R-A-N-O-R-D. His Facebook is uh, Reynard Derensburg. That's R-A-N-O-R-D. Derensburg is D-A-R-E-N-S-B-U-R-G. And today we have a packed uh, uh, topic, agenda of things to talk about. We certainly are going to talk about unanimous juries and Policing Alternatives for Youth, also known as the Pay Ordinance. And if we have time, we're going to talk about some of the constitutional amendments that uh, last week we had uh, Senator Morell uh, walk okay. us through. Okay. But uh, I'm always uh, open to having uh, more uh, information because those amendments are not written at a fifth grade level like the they rest. Are not. And, they and they are incredibly complicated. And one of my particular missions in, in life is to see about getting those written at a level that people will actually understand because I think that's going to help engage in the the uh, electoral process. Uh, and then, of course, throughout this whole thing, we are going to talk about the importance of voting. I think early voting starts tomorrow. Yes, it does. Great. Renard, why don't you talk to us real quickly about what it is that you do, and then let's launch into unanimous juries, maybe walk us through the importance of unanimous juries, what that constitutional amendment is, and maybe what the history is. Okay. Well, uh, well, you said my name is Renard Darrensburg. I am a native New Orleanian. I have uh, lived in New Orleans most of my life, though I've said some some chances to leave and live in other places, but I consider this home and will uh, always do so. I've been an attorney here in New Orleans for the past 20 plus years, maybe 25 years I've been an attorney, as well as a registered social worker. Most of my work, however, has been in the legal field. I have worked in all, all forms of practice of law, from insurance defense to even working with entertainment, entertainers in the entertainment field. So, And even representing some local entertainers around uh, sure. New Orleans, some of our famous local attain- entertainers. But in all of that time, a part of my career and a part of my work has always found itself in the juvenile justice system. I've had many positions, uh, part-time and full-time, in the juvenile courts uh, from traffic referee to clerk of court even to a short stint as a pro temp appointed as a judge by the Louisiana Supreme Court in the juvenile court. 
So I consider that a bit of my bailiwick, if you will, about what has been the most uh, significant part of my career has always involved juveniles and their uh, involvement in court involved juveniles. Sure. And this is why talking about the pay ordinance is going to be yeah. particularly interesting. Uh, and again, the pay ordinance is a policing alternative for youth. And before we get to that, and that is an incredibly important, in fact, I think I was able to, to, if you don't mind me saying, I was able to hook you for this show to talk about the pay ordinance. Exactly. And, uh, and then I, and then we snuck in, uh, the, the uh, which is a very unanimous important, juries. and I'm sure that Senator Morrell spoke of it is a very important and historic event for yes. uh, for our state to yes. take such an action we believe. So Renard, can you like walk us through and are you I mean if you can you, are you can you talk about the history of yeah, it as well? Yes, yeah. Yes. So why don't you just take just do unanimous juries one on one. I don't <laughs> think that there is enough I you know we've had Senator Morell on twice for mm-hmm. one hour clips. So we've had him on two hours on on the Resistance Radio which is the the program that appears after mm-hmm. this one and I don't think that we could have enough Absolutely. with respect to unanimous unanimous juries and when you I have found that when I break down unanimous juries to people they 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 just they're in disbelief like there there is an element of racism that is so fundamentally core to this country that I think that a lot of people have not uh just you know they there has been an, an ability to kind of forget about it or not recognize it and I think unanimous juries is a really good opportunity for people to go what that that's still a thing and that happens here and and how did that get started mm-hmm. so if uh, uh can you, if you go over that uh, that I would appreciate it. before you do you are tuning into health as a human right and uh, Noel Matters, Health is a Human Right. My name is Mark Allendary. With me is Raynard Derensberg, very close friend uh, and somebody that I admire greatly. He's an attorney and social worker who's currently working as the judicial administrator for the Orleans Parish Juvenile Court. And he uh, can be found at, uh, he tweets at Raynard, that's R-A-N-O-R-D. So Raynard, can you talk to us a bit about unanimous juries? I, I'm happy to do it. And again, thank you for having me here to talk about it. And you're absolutely right. It is uh, one of the, and I don't want to say, it is one of the last vestiges of, of uh, racism and, and uh, slavery that exists it, it, in the it, country. It, it is, and it, I'm so, I am sorry to interrupt, but it is really one of the most obvious uh, examples of Jim Crow right. that, that exists yeah. as well. I don't think that, uh, in, it, is, it, is, it is for me an example, a real case study in the provenance of what would be a institutionalized racism. The um, the origins of it are not suspect, nor were they were they unclear about their intentions. It was the the initiation of this practice was based on retaining the supremacy of the white race and disenfranchising as many African-Americans that they could after Reconstruction or during Reconstruction when these rights were gained by, by former slaves. And so the idea that these former slaves would have some impact on their economy and on their lives was a bit more than they could handle, and they wanted to take any action possible to, to d- dilute and eliminate them from voter rolls and voter involvement. At the time that this was instituted back in 1898 in the Constitution, and I'll go back a little, in the Constitutional Convention, there were about 130,000 registered vote, registered black registered voters in the state of Louisiana. So, with that growing population, there became a fear about uh, jury verdicts and who would be convicted of a crime and sent to jail. And they wanted to also part of it was to retain a lot of free labor. Uh, at the time, the uh, prisoners were used as free labor. It was an opportunity to put these people back into an involuntary servitude sort of state. And the 
the, uh, the ability to do that was easier if you were able, the more people you were able to convict. And it certainly did. I mean, all of the statistics show that these convictions based upon this jury system of would uh, disproportionately affect African Americans in the way it was in the way it was implemented. But just to to let people know in the beginning what it is they're voting on. So what what is going to happen on November sixth and in early voting, which begins on tomorrow and extends to October thirtieth? What we're voting on is uh, the um, it's going to be Amendment Two, and it's it is for the unanimous agreement of all members of a twelve member jury for felony cases. Currently, what I think people uh, don't know is that on murder cases and capital cases, it must it requires a unanimous jury. What happens in other felony cases is that a jury can be a, a person can be convicted of a crime or crimes with a ten to two. Uh, split in the in the vote and there are lots of reasons why people give it today but the original reasons were specifically stated in the at the constitutional convention of 1898 that we have got to preserve the supremacy of the white race and this would be that process and initially if i remember correctly it was actually nine to three wasn't it and that changed in like 1973 now how do you square the circle of the fact that they talk about beyond a reasonable doubt. How can you prove or how do you convict somebody when there may be the reasonable doubt of two or at least in those days, even three? I mean, one person is reasonable doubt, right? I mean, but two, let alone three. Uh, how do you square that circle? Well, you're, you're right. In Louisiana, from the time, however, from the time that Louisiana attained statehood in 1812, I believe it was, from that time until the uh, Constitutional Convention, there was a requirement of a unanimous verdict. The, yes, and in 1898, the, the findings of the, of the result of the Constitutional Convention did, in fact, uh, set, the, set the split at nine to three. And it, that was not changed until 1974 when, squaring that circle, the, the, the consensus then was, yes, nine to three is racist and it disproportionately affects African Americans and we're putting people in jail. But the, the change in the number was the excuse to say it was no longer racism but rather efficiency so that it, it, it eliminated the idea that reasonable doubt, reasonable doubt was not considered when the, number, when the number was there. It is obvious that there's a reasonable doubt among your peers if you are able to, if you're not able to obtain everyone coming to a consensus. But that even too was manipulated in the process to eliminate black voters from the rolls. When they get to court, there are challenges, but there was always, there will always be the question of reasonable doubt when you have people that don't that don't agree however that was not the consideration in the determination of making this a practice the determination was was listed in in 1974 as efficiency to reduce the cost and what they believe that they would re reduce is the number of hung juries but how did they I mean, I guess, you know, one thing that is obvious to you and I, and maybe we should make clear in context of this conversation, is that there's only two states in the union that do this, right? So there's 48. It's not like there's just a handful, oh, all those liberal coastal states. I mean, there's 48 other states that don't, that we are one of two, and the two are is Louisiana, obviously, and then the uh, another state that has its origins in racism as well, which is Oregon, which also has a 10 to 2 split. And how did they, you know, if it if efficiency doesn't seem to be a problem in other states, 
and and if hung juries aren't necessarily a problem in states that do 12-0, which is really is the gold standard, how did they, again, I, I'm going to fall back on the analogy, how did they square that circle? <laughs> the way that they work a, a, around around the number and around the states is that, well, some of the dissension, what I'll get to is some of the dissension, because there were objections to this, this constitutional amendment. And their argument is that if it's, it works for us, and if it's working for us, then we shouldn't change it. And we don't do things just because other people are doing it. There is not an appreciation, though there wasn't an appreciation by the dissenters for the wisdom of the other, the other 48 states. It is, a, it is solely a practice of this state because of what they are attempting to preserve in Louisiana. And you know, one thing that I it never occurred to me was that you're right. Was it the 14th Amendment mm-hmm. that made that abolished slavery, mm-hmm. but that there is uh, some verbiage in that amendment? And of course, you being an attorney, I'm mm-hmm. going to defer to you. <laughs> There's some verbiage in that amendment that does allow for free labor to still persist under the auspices of somebody's being incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I never made that final leap, and thank you for, for making me aware of that, that that part of that initial intent, of course, has to have been the fact that the the fact that, that although, of course, uh, black people in America in those days were free and they were no longer, by the 14th Amendment, no longer required to act as slaves, mm-hmm. the fact that... Uh, uh, there would be a, a jury, it, they'd be more likely to convict a black person at nine to three at the time that the constitutional amendment occurred. There'd be more likely to be white people that would potentially act nativism or tribalism and put somebody in jail that in which somebody then can be. Uh, it's so effing insidious. I really wish I could drop an F-bomb there to really <laughs> express my frustration with mm. that type of thinking. I mean, it's so bad. Right. What do you put in, what you're putting your finger on is exactly what what I, I, I alluded to earlier about how the beginnings of institutionalization of racism begins so that yes it will be now that we can no longer now the 14th amendment now applies rights and gives rights and abolishes slavery and gives rights to these individuals who were not full people under the constitution prior to it not only it does that and so now we have to figure out a way to a lot to keep these people from taking over as they would describe it. So the 14th Amendment allowed for free labor, but the 14th Amendment has also been the 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 stick that has been used that has been used in the courts. Look, this issue is not a new issue, the the the, um, the abolishing of the split juries. It's an issue that has been addressed by the Supreme Court and in the Supreme but what the Supreme and what they used to address it in the Supreme Court was in fact the 14th Amendment, citizens rights and everyone has a right. But the, what the Supreme Court said was that it did not extend the right to a unanimous jury. So that the 14th Amendment did not cover the issue of whether or not you were to get you were to you were to had a right to receive a unanimous jury. Is that splitting hairs? I mean, it, you know, Senator Morrell, when he was on last week, said even Antonin Scalia was 
was for having a unanimous mm-hmm. jury, and that's why he thinks if this if that if this fails, because we actually don't know what the numbers are. There is no polling, as far as I know. Maybe you know mm-hmm. polling on what, what how it's going to do. That mm-hmm. he said that if this fails, that he thinks within ten years that this is going to actually work its way to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, and he thinks it's going to win in the U.S. Supreme Court just because uh, justices. Uh, um, uh, not Merrick Garland, who was on before Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh, and then uh-huh. who was uh, the one who just went on. Uh, anyway, that they both w- were interned for, or not interned, whatever the equivalent. They were for both. Uh, both. They, are they for. both work. They both interned under S- Scalia, yeah. and so that they probably have very similar judicial principles as as Scalia uh, uh, does. But is that splitting hairs, though? I mean, what you just described. I mean, to me, the gold the gold standard is twelve. I mean, that's, you know, that's the way it is the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. I think in democratic, uh, you know, countries around the world, this is, you know, it may not necessarily be 12, but it's all unanimous in the fact that there's a split because it, it, listen, I'm not an attorney and I'm not a policymaker. I'm a doctor, but mm-hmm. I also understand that I could think about that when you get 10 people to get to a certain, you know, if you get 10 people to agree on something, mm-hmm game over they don't care about the other two that are going to disagree mm-hmm. they're going to pack it up and move on and you know time to go home and mm-hmm. and you know the the thing about that is that that is a, that's a misconception as well uh getting to 10 is not quicker than getting to a unanimous verdict unanimous verdicts are reached typically within the first couple of hours of deliberation. If it's going to be unanimous, it's going to be unanimous. Usually it takes longer when you're attempting to convince people one way or the other. So that this is the argument that is used when it comes to a hung, to getting the unanimous verdict, the misconception that it's going to take longer or that the, the finding of a split verdict allows you a, a quicker result which it does not allow you a quicker result. What it huh. in fact allows huh. for is a more inaccurate result because yeah. more split verdicts are overturned than unanimous verdicts. So what we're going to be voting on starting tomorrow uh, with uh, early voting and then obviously on the November 6th is essentially uh, we're voting yes on amendment. You're voting yes to on amendment, amendment two. two. That, that says that that will require that all felonies, and that, that includes capital cases, but all felonies will require a unanimous decision of all 12 jurors or six jurors if it is a smaller panel right so how did we uh well if you're tuning in you are listening to nola matters this is health as a human right um my uh my name is mark yallandary uh with me uh today uh is a uh, very close friend and, and brilliant legal mind uh, mr raynard uh, derensburg who's an attorney and social worker as well as the judicial administrator of orleans paris juvenile court he tweets at raynard that's r-a-n-o-r-d you can find him on facebook at raynard derensburg and derensburg is spelled d-a-r-e-n-s B-U-R-G. How, um, so obviously this is something that's come up in the past. It came up in the mid-70s. Senator Morrell talked about how uh, he was approached, I think, last year to see, because he was being termed out on, on this session. And then can you walk us through how it, got, how it worked its way through the committees as well as the houses? A little bit. I think I can I remember a little bit of that. Well, yeah, it was Senator Morrell, and I, I want to say Senator Clayton, I could be wrong, but Senator Morrell introduced this legislation about in April, I think in April, it may have passed, but about in April of this year, it uh, 
it passed. It passed the. Uh, there was some dissension. There was some conversation, and we've gone over the some of the uh, objections to it. Why? Why fix it if it's not broken? It's not inefficient. These. It. We. We fixed it in in 1972. These are just some of the arguments against the against the uh, amendment. But the amendment passed by 27 votes. It didn't pass. What I'm What I'm getting at is that even in the in the House. It did not necessarily pass overwhelmingly. It passed. It needed a majority. It needed like a two-thirds, super majority, right? two-thirds, right. and it only passed by one or two votes uh, more than it needed. It was. It then went to the Senate. In the Senate, it was amended to. Uh, it, there were a few amendments in the Senate, and those amendments were amendments that would say it did not apply to uh, cases that existed before. Jan- it will begin if it passes on January first, two thousand nineteen. One of those amendments that it wouldn't, it would not apply to cases that were before January first, two thousand nineteen. All right, I said that right. January first, yeah. two thousand nineteen, right. and and a few other small amendments. So then it had to go back to the House to ratify those changes in the Senate, and then it eventually passed, but still by by just a few <laughs> votes more than it needed to go on to the ballot in, on November sixth. And because this is a constitutional amendment, obviously the governor, this is not a law that the governor would sign, mm-hmm. that this would then needs to go to the people. Yes. To, to, okay, well, yeah, would yeah, that be it, right. ratified? Is ratified the right verb? Is, is it ratified or? It was voted on. That's voted the vote. On. Okay, right, got right. it. Right. That's All voted right. on by the by the people. And they make the people make the decision or or the, to make the amendment. So the right. amendment to the constitution would be voted on by the people. Right. So what is, uh, or, or do you have a sense of how this is going? I mean, how in your well, circles, in, 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 in your world that you, that you move in, what, what, what is the sense that you're getting? Because I traverse a wide range of folks, <laughs> I have, um, I yes, have you do, every, um, <laughs> I have every opinion has been expressed to me regarding this. I have a, obviously I have a special, uh, affinity for the argument about racism and and how it has uh, impacted my community my sure. uh, community sure uh, however I do understand the the argument of others because we do know that there have been cases that have been popular cases a personal friend has a, had a case that's not a popular case but a personal friend had a case in which uh, it, it involved rape and the individual that was convicted on a 10 to 2 uh, jury with a 10 to 2 uh, jury verdict had committed this crime every month for a period of time but was only convicted on this one so this these people feel as though that was a preventative measure by the same at the same time we remember the famous case was a football player and somebody used to tell me his name uh that was killed on felicity right that verdict as well that was it that was a cardell hayes was a 10 to 2 verdict wow so we have to look and but it, those and, are like right. Yes, what I'm going to say. Okay. No system is okay. perfect, and we are right. going to find that these that these these this these outcomes exist. Our system of our system of trying people, our system altogether, one way or another, we're going to either convict some innocent people, and we're going to let go some guilty people. We have to develop a system that eliminates as much as possible and catches as many people as possible. The people who would vote for a 10 to 2 verdict would tell you that that is a system that catches most people that are inside of this loop. However, what it leaves out is the other piece that it catches more it, it catches more people incorrectly, and those are overturned. Now, it is not yet, I don't believe, to be specific, to be clear, that it has not yet been proven to be a statistically significant um, difference in the number of overturned 
verdicts. But what it what has been statistically significant is the disproportionate impact that it has on the African American community. Yes. So that um, it is what's happening is that these people are going to jail and and not getting out. There were ten men that were that that whose verdicts were overturned with split decisions and only two of them with the proof that you had to show you have to they, what you'd have to prove if your verdict which you have to prove your verdict is overturned is that there were in order to receive any compensation a factually based uh, incorrectness of your case that caused your case to be incorrectly ruled for you to receive the victim compensation monies from a compensation from from wrongful convictions and only two of those men were able to recover anything from that fund which left uh, 10 or 10 men out there one eight men out there that didn't receive anything and were left out in the community to their own vices to try to recreate their lives in the meanwhile went to jail were wrongly convicted their right. their lives were ruined their families lives were ruined children didn't have a parent uh, spouses didn't have a spouse uh, uh, you know the stigma associated I mean th- this is without question is a central pillar of structural racism that exists in our state structural racism that exists in our society and has led without question to one of the main if not the main reason why the state of Louisiana has the highest rates of incarceration in the world it, it and that is that is exactly the reason but it is a system that is designed to create such a thing. I don't believe. Yes, it is that a system that was done with surgical precision <laughs> to create the the situation that we're in right now. I agree with you 100. percent That is the uh, that was the full intent of it. I don't. What I don't think is that the lawmakers ever anticipated that it would be viewed as negative that your that Louisiana had the highest incarceration rate in the world. I mean, it was a bit of a in uh, during slave. It was a bit of a badge of honor in Louisiana that it was a very difficult life for slaves here in Louisiana. And so no one wanted to be a slave in Louisiana. So certainly. So it is really it it, it really what we're seeing is the. Hold the on, are tail you end. saying that that the Louisiana slave owners were more. Like they were brutal like, and more more treacherous to their slaves. Yeah, really. Documented that wow. Louisiana God was the worst it. place, really, <laughs> to be enslaved. But I thought New Orleans was so like. I mean, like, wasn't there? I mean, wasn't well, like, Louisiana? You're saying New Orleans had a lot of cosmopolitanness to it, but it was still the worst place to be enslaved. Do we? I mean, we know that Jackson Square at, at the end of slavery, Jackson Square was the location of the first prison. In New Orleans, and um, slaves that committed crimes were imprisoned in Jackson Square. Wow! But wasn't the whole thing about Congo Square then in the in the creation of Congo Square was just a place where they allowed slaves to be on Sundays? Sundays, right? They allowed them to. But there's certainly no other. No one else let. I, again, I'm not making an argument for. In fact, I want to jump off of this. Like, I just, I, I interrupted you when I said that. I just, I, I can't believe that that of all the horrible things, and then also you add to it that Louisiana was known to be particularly brutal. Particularly brutal, yes. And and oftentimes when when uh, in Louisiana, in New Orleans, and often around Congo Square, and then we can, there were oftentimes these celebrations, these these opportunities to celebrate were um, were ended with beatings and rapes by uh, the slave owners that did not enjoy that. So that it was not always a, a pleasant experience in the end, and that is throughout the country, that often when uh, slaves were allowed to celebrate, this often ended in a, in a, a beating and 
and right. uh, not not such a pleasant experience. But it is it, it all boils down to these are the tail ends of these types of policies and laws and constitutional amendments that were instituted to um, to maintain as best as possible white supremacy. The yeah. Yes, the white supremacy. The white supremacy. Of, of, of which, when people argue against it today, I, I mean, you are incredibly. Um, uh, generous with your verbiage yeah. about the opposite argument yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> because here's what I hear if I hear anybody talking opposite to you know you know voting no for mm-hmm. unanimous you know for unanimous juries or amendment two here's what I hear their argument come out to be is wah 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 <laughs> to me it's just it's maintaining structural racism in the state of Louisiana and that's what of, it sounds like to me one of the ways that we're able to do it is that people already believe you would be here is the the real the real shocker and what I believe in, in my conversations would, in my opinion, diminish the vote. It is the belief that people think it already exists. People do not know that people can, that individuals can be convicted of a felony in Louisiana with 10 people on the jury voting for that. Just as a general practice, people don't know that. Not many people, though we, we are talking about people being involved in the criminal justice system, it is a, it is only a, there is only a small population of people that ever come in contact with the criminal justice system overall. Right. So that the, the larger majority, meaning the people who have to vote, are already making assumptions. Right. So that some of the people that I've spoken to are confused by it. And they they're wondering if what they're voting for is to split the verdict because they believe it already exists. Right. So, I mean, which goes back to how we started the show, which was one, when I tell people about this, they're always stunned that, right. that this exists. But then two, uh, you know, I, I don't, you know, we're going to maybe jump a topic or two here, but it goes back to, they don't, re- they don't write these amendments in a way that the average American, especially those that have fifth grade reading levels, which mm-hmm. is what I am reminded about, what mm-hmm. the average Louisianan has, mm-hmm. can read and make sense of it. And it, to me, that strikes me as that's disengaging the voter process. It does. It does. Just say, and, 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 and to be honest with you, there was a study. There was a study on these. I believe these constitutional amendments. Um, that are going to be on the ballot in, on November sixth, and the readability score. It, the, the that's a thing. Are, that's a thing. That, oh. that's a thing. <laughs> wow, There's okay. a readability score <laughs> for the constitutional amendments. Now, the the, the results are the part that's most most distressing. <laughs> Because the constitutional amendments that are written here in 2018, their readability score was high. But what the readability score meant was that these constitutional amendments are written for someone who has 20 years of education, which yeah, means course. college and <laughs> so graduate school and some time after that. Right. So, so there I has have, to be some work. I have, a, I have two master's degree <laughs> and a doctorate degree, okay? And even, even, even my wife, who is the co-founder of this radio station, uh, before she had her current job, uh, she would have to come in every single election. She would spend hours preparing the show, and she would come in and she would dissect out which each of the constitutional amendments, or what the or what the voting, what the different. If you're not voting on the electoral stuff when you're voting on an amendment or voting on this, that, or whatever, they are not readable. And and you know that cons- that score of re- readability being high, is it? Is it like are we in upside upside down world? So that if it's high, that really means that if it's can, high, means you have a it is more it's it's bad. It, it's it's bad. bad. Okay, good. Right. Okay, that's what, the score is bad if it's high because it requires more in t- more education. Right. Then the um, so who is? Let me ask you this because I was trying to get uh, Senator Morell to talk about this last weekend. Mm-hmm. Who 
and he kind of and he went through the process about who the uh, there was a senator or it was a state it was either a state senator or it was a congressperson who actually managed to pass a law that got the amendments whittled down so that the verbiage is shorter on them so that it's not two paragraphs or three paragraphs because somebody's going to be in the booth and they're going to be reading these for the first time that they thought that that if they made the amendments shorter to read, that it would be easier for people. But that didn't work because they, there was, you know, they're still written in a, mm-hmm. in a very high level of education, you know, needed to understand what it is that they're saying. Uh, and when I hear somebody like yourself or when I hear somebody like uh, Senator Morell describe the amendment, when they, when you use plain English words, you can get across what it is that you're trying to say very quickly. Well, I'll just say, I'm not familiar with the amendment to make them shorter, but I am familiar with the thinking and the the drafting of the amendments is intended on some level to precisely mirror the larger amendment. So the shorter version has to use words that are exactly some of the words exactly so that it could be well, I, I think mean, it is I think it is it is it is aimed at efficiency in the sense that it is exactly what the the amendment says the the uh, amendment how the amendment reads and I was a little incorrect in that it was the 2017 ballot that had a a readability really, score that required it. 20 years of formal education got it all right Reynard if you're tuning in you're listening to Noel Matters uh, this is health is a human right my name is Mark Gounder I've got Reynard Derensburg here attorney and social worker and judicial administrator of the Orleans Parish Juvenile Court we have about I don't know we got about maybe 10 minutes ish or so can you talk to us about the policing alternative for youth also known as the pay unless there was was there anything else that you wanted to say well no there wasn't anything else I wanted necessarily to say on it but I wanted to if people want more information about it, there are lots of opportunities to get information. I did I okay. did want to share with everyone some upcoming opportunities before the please, voting, please. before the uh, election on November 6th that are that a lot that would allow them to go in and find out more information about it. I believe my belief and the reason I came on is I believe it's imperative to give people a clear understanding of what they're voting on. And you're right that the amendment the way about the way the amendments are written, because we are lucky that this is number two, the second amendment on the ballot, because the frustration grows as we go down the ballot. As you move further down the ballot, fewer and fewer people <laughs> vote. And as you move further and further down amendments, is that a thing? A really? Yes. Yes, fewer people vote. If you're further down the ballot, the the statistics show that fewer people vote. They stop voting as you go down the ballot. They even stop voting as you go down the candidates. So the further they have to go down, the less likely they're. Yes, people leave the polls having not voted for everything on Whoa, the, on the I, list. God, that's, so we want people to be clear Reynard, about what they're voting Can we have you come on. back in and talk to us about some of the psychology or the statistics about what happens when people go into the oh, booth? Sure. Yeah. Is there, and I, here's me being somewhat conspiratorial, but do they set these, do they set up the ballots in a way so that it disproport, like if they, I mean, I've heard of candidates wanting to be at the top of the ballot mm-hmm. because, and I'm assuming it's based on what you just said just mm-hmm. now, but is there like, I mean, do people get to put the thumbs on the scale? Or, I mean, obviously, this is the importance of the secretary of state, because mm-hmm. essentially the secretary of state makes the decision, mm-hmm. I assume, as to how the ballot looks so that it could potentially 
uh, influence one thing or influence another, right? I mean, if there was an amendment that somebody wants passed uh, and they know that if they put it at the very bottom, no one's going to read, it's going to be hard to read, mm. and they know they just get a bunch of people of, or their constituents to vote for it, th mm. that's a way that you can use the electoral mm. system to your advantage, right? It could, it could be a way, but that would take that would take a little bit more. But again, people are not, our, our system is not... Uh, Short I on mean, finding look what's ways happening in Kansas City or Kansas, the state of Kansas, and look what's happening in Georgia. In Kansas, you have Chris Korbach, who mm -hmm. is the Secretary of State, who's running for who's governor, running. and he is a notorious purger of oh, people oh, of color voters. Right, right. And then the same thing with George Kemp, you have who is also the Secretary of State, who's also running against the great Stacey Abrams, mm -hmm. uh, and they are purging hundreds of thousands of people, of, people of color. But she still says that she's still staying up in the polls, so we'll see how that goes. But we don't know oh, yeah. go. Please. Please, the, please, um, please, but please, as please. regards to the placement on the ballot, generally the state of Louisiana, I believe, goes tries to eliminate that possibility by doing statewide elections and 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 whittling down further to local elections. And within the within the categories, candidates are in alphabetical order. So the way that candidates are able to make themselves stand out is if you're um, Joe Buck Zabinowitz, you want to mm -hmm. make sure your buck. Buck, or you know, you make sure that so Stacey people, Abrams, if she were here in Louisiana, she would be, she'd be at the top of the ballot, the, she would be up above the oh, the, Kemp. She, so, she, if she were here, she's Abrams being A would be above would Kemp, be which above would be K. Kemp. Got right. it. Okay, so that is the way we've sort of eliminated that sort of that sort of uh racist leaning. However, people just generally the psychology is that people become exhausted by it and or. The first thing is that people have a many voters have a very specific reason they're going into the poll. So if Mark Allen is running for mayor and I want to vote for him, there are many people that go into the poll and vote for Mark Allen and walk out of the poll. So there are one issue there are or one, one issue many, many one issue candidates that go. In, I mean, sorry, one issue of voters that go into the polls, vote their issue, and leave the polls. Mm -hmm. So educate voter education is really the most significant thing. So on. Tomorrow, today is the 20th, on tomorrow, there is going to be an event called, these are all sponsored by the Innocence Project. And the Innocence Project is going to do a conversations on the evolution of mass incarceration. There's a free lunch at, uh, on the, also on the 23rd to talk about unanimous, unanimous verdicts. But more to the public on, there's a happy hour on October 25th at Revolution. And this happy hour is to talk about uh, unanimous verdicts and it's to donate and benefit to unanimous verdicts. And there's going to be a discussion of the 12 Angry Men movie. Uh, here in New Orleans, so there will be opportunities for people. <laughs> if it were filmed to, in Louisiana, it would be ten angry. Men. Right, <laughs> ten it angry is going. It is an opportunity for people. There are opportunities for people to discuss the, the, uh, the unanimous verdicts and get more information about it, so that they are able to share it with other people accurately. So, uh, so that when people go into the polls, they're voting for voting yes on Amendment Number Two. It Please is critical, and vote. it really is a. It's a, if it, it, there can be no more incentive to me than the fact that it's a historic moment to have the opportunity to vote on a constitutional amendment that is absolutely changing um, something that has been in place for 138 years. And again, has its uh, has its, its origins in. in Deep, obvious, deep, obvious racism. So certainly they, anyone voting can can chalk their vote up to a vote on behalf of ending racism in Louisiana. Structural racism. And, right, and, and talk to us about the pay ordinance. The pay ordinance is a, 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 an effort to stop incarcerating a, a 
bringing youth into the juvenile justice system unnecessarily. What uh, council member back in uh, 2016, I believe it was, council member Susan Guidry initiated this through her chairmanship of the Criminal Justice Committee of the City Council. She wanted to create an opportunity for youth who um, commit low-level offenses and status offenses to not be introduced into the juvenile justice system. What we know from the data is that when children are introduced to the, the more they're introduced to the juvenile justice system, the more likely they're going to be involved in the juvenile justice this system. This is the so-called school to uh, school prison, to prison pipeline, pipeline, where somebody exactly. gets suspended or something, they go straight to prison, and then that significantly right. increases the likelihood of more, of in more involvement in the juvenile justice system. So what the pay ordinance does is takes low-level offenses, low-level nonviolent offenses, and they are the criminal trespass, uh, fighting, truancy, status offenses, and it allows the officer who comes in contact with a youth to issue a juvenile warning notice or a summons. The juvenile warning notice is simply a warning that they advise the juvenile that you have now received a warning and this will be recorded. And if you receive another warning within 365 days, the potential exists for you to be brought to the juvenile justice uh, center. If they are issued a summons, the summons must be issued to the parent. In the instance that a juvenile is issued a juvenile summons, that juvenile is then brought to a holding facility that is not the juvenile justice center, but another location where a parent can be located. And when the parent is located, that summons is then issued to the parent uh, of the juvenile to advise them that this juvenile has been stopped by the police and they may be contacted by the district attorney's office. Currently, the, the police department, the New Orleans Police Department, is only issuing the warning notices so that the summonses are not yet being issued as they are phasing in the program with the officers. So currently, uh, officers are issuing uh, summon, summon, I'm sorry, juvenile warning notices for criminal mischief violations, truancy, and uh, small, uh, small thefts. Things of that nature, we want to try to keep the ideas to keep juveniles out of the juvenile justice system when it is not necessary and when we can make interventions, put interventions into place that are more effective and more pro-social interventions. One of the ones that the court has to offer now to those who receive juvenile warning notices is the uh, PASS program. And this, we, we are titling that PASS because it is Paving Alternative Strategies to Success. What that program does is institute the restorative justice approach. And what that approach seeks to do is bring together the all parties involved in an incident or in a conflict. And it is to invoke account. It is to promote accountability first, but also to promote a consensus building and to have to have a child or anyone who's in conflict come to a consensus about what the consequences of their actions are, understand their actions and come to a consensus about the consequences of those actions and understanding in the end what the consequences will be for further involvement. This has been a successful program, successful practice all over the country and is used throughout the city in schools. The restorative justice approach is an approach that speaks to improving the pro-social activities and to uh, resolve issues, resolve conflict in a more cohesive manner and a holistic manner rather than... And through, are these, through. these have passed or are they... The, the, this is already at play, right? This has this, all of it. All of it is in existence now. It's yeah. in, so how is the how's now. the program working? Then? The program is working well now. The program is new, 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 as new as the pay ordinance. So we haven't seen much in our in our court. We've done about four communities, six. We've done exactly six uh, 
restorative circles is what they're so restorative the, the, circles so and they the, all have been successful and this has changed the way that you practice then too right in your court yes yes what do you, so you've seen have you seen a decline or a reduction in the number of cases that have come in front of you well that is what we hope to see we definitely hope to see the, the this has been instituted only in the last month this is the, the the pay ordinance has been in practice for only the last month i believe that they have actually been issuing the juvenile warning notices but yes the anticipation is that we will see less people coming into the juvenile justice system for low-level offenses and our goal is to eliminate kids who coming into the system for things that don't necessarily that don't qualify as crimes first of all and that don't that are nonviolent and can be uh, addressed through interventions and resources within the community what we are attempting to do through this ordinance and through many other measures is to prepare ourselves for March next year March 19th we will be in the raise the age uh, statute will go into effect in Louisiana, which raises the juvenile age from 17 to 16 to 17. So the juvenile court in New Orleans, beginning in March of next year, will begin to see 17 year olds for misdemeanor and traffic offenses. Eventually, it is, a, it is a staged process also, so that as the years go by, by 2020, the age will be raised to 18, and juvenile court will be the court of jurisdiction for all crimes committed by persons 18 and under. So this is a process, and this pay ordinance is the idea, the, the wisdom is that if we can get rid of these low-level offenses, the judges in juvenile court will have the opportunity to pay more attention and spend more time with more serious offenses that threaten public safety. Safety. Why do they wait till 20? How come they just didn't do 18 foom and just be done with it? Well, we'll tell you they haven't done 17 yet. We're just hoping <laughs> that it'll happen. It was postponed this year and we are looking to 2019 and hoping that it will not be postponed again. We have like one or two okay. minutes. Can you tell me about what one of these restorative circles look like? Just well, the, in very quickly. The restorative circle looks like in a, a family conversation, a, a family conversation, a community conversation. All parties are involved. Now, that means it's your minister, your mother, your father, your neighbor, if that's who you're having the conflict with, your brothers, your sisters, and any resources that can come to bear to assist in the, the, uh, the resolution of the issue. And these people come together and discuss it in a circle and come to a common they, understanding. They come to the court. They, they do not come to the court. They come, they come to, to a, a, a designated meeting space is where they come to. So it may be a library. It may be an office. It's, it is a neutral space is where they come to. The okay. court has some intimidating uh, prospect, of course. Uh, uh, effects. But so and you would preside as the how facilitator. You're facilitator the facilitator. And we are bringing in the ideas that the person causing the conflict, if you will, comes to account for what they've done, realize what they've done and why they've done it and what and real and accepts the that's consequences amazing. of their That's their amazing. Action. And that's and the it way works. And, it, and, and, and everyone is, is comes out a whole because the, the the victim is there as well of course. and is in agreement with whatever consequence. So they've been the victim's been acknowledged the, and, and they're exactly. and if they've been wronged, they've been acknowledged. The person who was there recognizes that, hey, wait a second, maybe you I mean this is an opportunity to intervene, possibly change somebody for the positive mm -hmm. and then alt uh, obviously or ultimately all, prevent them from exactly. having to touch all data the shows that positive intervention, certainly on low level offenses and in the beginning of any involvement in the juvenile justice system, those positive interventions are far more effective than the trauma Amazing. and the negative effects of detention, incarceration, and even dealing with the juvenile justice system. 
Wow. <laughs> All right. Renard uh, Derensberg, uh, very, very close friend, somebody God, I admire. Every time I hear you talk, I admire you uh, more. I appreciate all that you do. Whoa. Attorney, social worker, judicial administrator for the Orleans Parish Juvenile Court. You can find uh, Renard tweets at Renard. That's R-A-N-O-R-D. And his Facebook is Renard Derensberg. And Derensberg is D-A-R-E-N-S-B-U-R-G. Renard, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. I will definitely have you back on air as thank I you. think that there's so much being. more to talk about and so many more things to hear. So thank you so much. And Resistance Radio is coming up uh, in just a second. Anything else, sir? That's it. Thanks a lot. Everyone have a good night and get out and vote. Early voting starts on tomorrow and vote on November 6th. All right. There you go. You've heard it from Reynard Derensburg. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Hey.